tracking. As, as Bo mentioned, the notes that you have are almost the exact same notes that you were given last week. Basically, I have re-given you the notes. So if you have last week's notes, you're fine. You don't need a new set of notes. We're picking up exactly where we stopped last week, and we're just going to keep moving forward. And we're at the tell in, tail end on this outline of our whole course. We've, we've already looked at the, defi- the biblical definition of a human is to be made in the image and likeness of God. And we are at the tail end of number two, to be created in the image of God includes being embodied. And so we have spent time looking at, in detail, the reality that to be an image bearer of God is to have both a physical and spiritual, material and immaterial hardware and software components of us, so to speak. And so we are at the very end of that. And so if you want to pick up on page 33 of your notes. Or the top of 34 in mine. So we've spent a lot of time thinking about the immaterial part of ourselves, the spirit, the soul, the um, software part of us. And I wanted to take a few moments to, before we close out this part, to think about the physical aspect of ourselves. And we have taken time thinking about how sin and the effects of the curse affect us both physically and spiritually. And so here at the bottom of 33, uh, we are thinking about body modification. Now, this is largely an ethical discussion, but it's something that's very important for us all to think about, because I think it's something that we assume, and so this is how we physically represent our bodies in the world. Now, we'll be talking about this more later as we, as we move on, especially when you get into topics like transgenderism, but simply the question is, does God allow us to change, and to what extent, the way that we physically exist or or look the way that we present to the world are there limits to how we modify ourselves as technology advances on all fronts there's nutritional advancement there's fitness advancement there's cosmetic advancement and there's technological advancement and more so does the bot does scripture talk about our physical bodies and what we can and can't do with them. Yeah, actually, it's the answer is yes. There's four case studies that we'll look at quickly, and then I'm just going to rifle through a host of ethical issues. That the purpose of this evening is not to get into a ethical debate on those things, where scripture is not clear. Most of them reside in the um, conscience arena, but there are ones that just need to be brought to our attention because I think there's. Areas that we assume God doesn't think about, and then maybe areas we assume God does think about, and we should look at those. So case study number one, does God care about how we dress? We'll revisit this at the end when we talk about modesty, but what about cross-dressing? In Deuteronomy 22.5, Scripture says that a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for... Whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh, your God. So here we see in Scripture, in Deuteronomy, God has a prohibition. And the purpose of this prohibition, 
the principle of this prohibition here in Deuteronomy in context is to maintain the distinctions of creation that we've been looking at all these weeks, particularly what it means to be male and female. And when we get to the topic of gender in a few weeks, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 11 to think more about gender expression or presentation, that males are supposed to look male and females are supposed to look female. So the principle in Deuteronomy 22 is that men ought to dress in a way that reveals they are men and vice versa. Women ought to dress in a way that reveals they are women. That is God's command that does not change or go away with the transition transition from the old covenant to the new covenant in Christ. So there's a case study for us to think about. God does care how we dress, especially as it relates to making sure that people aren't confused if you're male or female. Case study number two. And these case studies are going to set us up to think about some of the things I'm going to bring to our attention. Case study number two. What about makeup and braided hair? In 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says, Likewise also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So here is another way of physically presenting to the world. In this case, the apostle is singling out women and how women choose to display their beauty in the world. And principally, women and men, by implication, are to wear, quote, respectable apparel. Rather than clothing that distracts or uniquely draws attention to oneself and away from God, or clothing that is sexually revealing or sexually enticing. That's the principle behind modesty that we'll get to in a moment. So God cares that when we live in this world, men look like men and women look like women. Uh, God cares about how a woman and by implication a man adorn themselves in a way that glorifies the Lord and does not uniquely draw attention to oneself especially to distract from worship of the Lord um, or to sexually entice. Case study number three. Again, we're thinking about our bodies. Drink some wine for health purposes. 1 Timothy 5.23, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So principally here, Paul gives this instruction for medicinal purposes. In other words, Timothy is free to take steps to pursue healing and or relief from sickness beyond prayer. So we know that if we have an ailment, we can pray for God to deliver us or heal us from that ailment. But here the apostle is telling him to take some aspirin, right? He's using a first century medicinal act to bring healing to his body. And number four. A fourth case study, prayers for healing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, it's believed that this messenger from Satan gave him some type of ailment, some type of harassment. Something was going on physiologically with him. There's speculation that it may have been his eyesight or something else based on some other passage of scripture. We don't know conclusively, but the idea here is that Paul was having a problem with this distressing spirit. He prayed for the Lord to take it away, and the Lord said no. In fact, it was good for Paul to have a distressing spirit, a messenger sent from Satan. So just pause and think about that for a second and how streams of Christianity want to always cast out demons. Paul cast out demons, but here Jesus said no. The reason is it's keeping you humble and not letting you be conceited. But the principle here, the focus is on not spiritual warfare, a thing along those lines. The, prayer, the thing is that we can pray for healing, but God does not guarantee, contrary to the health and wealth gospel, God does not guarantee healing or deliverance from suffering, or in this case, a messenger of Satan, but he does guarantee through suffering. So we're thinking about we are embodied. We live in this world with our bodies, but we're seeing from these four case studies that God cares about how we dress. God cares about how we look to brothers and sisters in Christ. He cares that the way we dress maintains no ambiguity that you are either male or female. He cares about uniquely how women present themselves, especially in the worship, the, the assembling, that we can take interventions for health purposes. And sometimes the way Jesus answers our prayers to him for deliverance of suffering is, no, it's good for you. So let's get into these ideas or these areas that are in our world about ways that we use our bodies in the world. And, and you can go, well, there's a lot. This is just, I just sat down and thought of a quick list of things that need to have our at attention. So why we do things, your motive matters. We have to have a biblically calibrated conscience. And we all must distinguish between personal taste, cultural norms, and God's word. But with our physical selves, these are rhetorical questions. We need to think about health and fitness. Now, in the beginning, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how many Christians are functionally Gnostic, where we think the spiritual part of ourselves is the only part that matters, and the physical part of ourselves doesn't matter that much. So health and fitness. I think most people would say that it's good and right stewardship of our bodies to pursue health and fitness. We can turn an idol into anything, undoubtedly. But what about dental implants? Is it a sin to get dental implants? No offense, Dr. Todd. Don't say his last name so you don't know where he works. I, I wonder if you've ever thought, just for a moment, to submit that idea to the Lord. Is it right or wrong to get dental implants? Um, is it okay for you to get bolts or screws or rods for all manner of fixing bone breaks? 
Is it, is it okay to get a stint in your artery? Can you defend that biblically? How about organ transplant? So these are all ethical issues, but we should think about it. There's just things that we assume that are okay. Medicine, uh, medical drugs, supplements, supplements for athletic performance, for health, things along those lines. Um, how about makeup? Or painting your nails? Is it sin to get a haircut? Is it sin to shave your beard? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How about putting on perfume or deodorant? Is Paul prohibiting that when he makes that injunction in 1 Timothy 2, 9? We, we assume, for some of you, you may need to realize that it's loving your neighbor for you to put on deodorant and perfume how about tattoos there's a prohibition in Leviticus but when you read it in context the prohibition is specifically regarding pagan worship practices so someone might be saying no you cannot get tattoos but a woman can get her eyebrows tattooed on or lip liner tattooed but that that's okay but a the barbed wire is not okay. It's never okay. <laughs> and then how about piercings? Can you get your ears pierced? Where? Nose? Belly button? More? So all, all areas that we are, these are all ethical realms you have to pause and think about. I, I, I think that a lot of Christians, at least with our physical selves, don't give much thought to the choices we make without first submitting those to the Word of God. How about body augmentation? Is it okay in some circumstances but not others? Is body augmentation okay depending upon the motive? Uh, my news feed is, is uh, revealing that there's this new procedure that men are getting that breaks their femurs and then extends their legs so they can all become as tall as Matt Harmeyer? Is, is that okay? Can you, can you um, have your legs broken and then metal rods put in to make you taller? I, I was able to go to Turkey in 2019, and we were in Istanbul walking around, and there was bald men walking around with bloody bandages it was disgusting and it was real i couldn't figure out what was going on blood everywhere in their heads like people escaped from the hospital and were wandering around like zombies but it turns out in istanbul hair implants is a huge thing that they do there and so uh men with baldness were going there to get hair implants put in is that is that okay do you have permission in the lord to do that I think many of those things may or may not have limits, but certainly all of them need to be submitted to the Lord. Again, I said this is the point here is not to detail out every possible ethical uh, question regarding these things. That's why I say up here at the beginning, motive matters of why we do things. And if you're uncertain whether or not that you can get dental implants, you can consult those around you for wisdom on that issue. But what we can say what about attempting to change the body into what it is not? 
So if you've been here with the whole time, going back to our first, um, our first time together, our first session, because of technological advancement, for as much as it's been a benefit to society, there is also byproducts, such that we are seeing that people who experience gender dysmorphia, thinking that they are a man or a woman trapped in the opposite gender the body, um, that you can go now take hormones and have surgical procedures to make yourself physically present to a world that you are in fact not the gender that God assigned to you and gave you and gifted you with. So that's where the limits go. If God prohibits cross-dressing, then he certainly prohibits transgenderism. We'll get into that more down the road when we get into gender. And also those references to animal, demon, and vampire. We saw in our first time together those articles that I shared with people who believe that they are those things. The, the red fox, the animal, the vampire. And so people are able to engage in surgical procedures so they can physically present to the world to look like these creatures. And that exceeds what it looks like to be male and female. And you can't say, well, I look like a male dragon. God wants us to look like the image bearers that he's designed us to be. So there are, are limits to how we present ourselves physically to the world. So all I want to do with that is just breeze over that section to say that we should think about what we assume. And God does care how we steward our bodies in this world in relation to others, both to him and how we represent him as his image and likeness bearers, as well as how we represent ourselves when we gather for worship and go about our worshipful lives in this world. That's all I want to draw your attention to. I don't want to discuss much about that. Does anybody have a question but not a statement? Yes, Mandy. Yes, microphone, please. Can I, can I ask a question about alcohol that has to do with this? An alcohol question? No. I'll just say that scripture prohibits drunkenness as a sin, but allows the consumption of alcohol as a Christian freedom. Okay, ask the question, and then I might shut you down or welcome it. In love, either way. I'm used to it. Um, uh, is it like, okay, so in this situation that you used, alcohol was used as a medicinal thing for a physical ailment. Is it ever biblical to use it for emotional reasons? As in, God gave us alcohol to help soothe our woes, I guess. If you're not getting drunk. Can you specify that a little bit more, what you mean? Yeah, um, I've just had conversations with believers who have argued that God gives us various things to help comfort us emotionally and that alcohol is one of those things that can be used to comfort us emotionally. I think this person was intending it as like, if I had a hard day, I can have a beer. 
or if I'm depressed about life, I can have a beer? Uh, I do not think that's the reason that is the appropriate use of alcohol. I think that's an inappropriate use. And there's more questions that need to be asked to delve into those motives and what that person is thinking to answer that appropriately. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that, and we can talk more explicitly, you know, personally about that. Very good question. Any other, but I did bring up Psalm 104.15, that God gave wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. So uh, wine and the consumption of alcohol in scripture is used as a celebratory um, wedding, cana, etc. But drunkenness is always a sin and always prohibited. But like anything, we can misuse it. That's why I said motive matters. So if the person needs the icebreaker, there's a lot of concern going on there. And, it, and, and just on those limited details that you gave, sounds very concerning. Yellow flag moving red, that it's a misuse and abuse of that gift. Psalm 104.15. So something to think about. And by the way, I do think that you can get dental implants. (laughs) Modesty. We touched on this a moment ago, but again, thinking about how we display our masculinity and femininity to one another to the world, and in the gathered worship service. So uh, again, just re-quoting 1 Timothy 2, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. And then again to women in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Precious. And related, uh, Proverbs 11.22, like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. And part of that would include how she is sexually representing herself, physically, visually, to a world. In these three passages, principally, women who are singled out in these three passages, and don't worry, there's passages that single single out men, and we'll get to those eventually. But principally, women and men are to wear respectable apparel rather than clothing that distracts or uniquely draws attention to oneself and away from God, and her clothing that is sexually revealing or enticing. Our choice of clothing, while still being fashionable and attractive, in a non-sexual sense, ought to be, ought first to be an act of worship to God as we present ourselves to the world, and second, a helpful service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. As embodied image bearer of Christ, the Christian must think biblically, theologically and wisely about the use, stewardship, and presentation of one's material, physical self for God's glory, your Christian neighbor's good, 
and Christ-like witness to the world. So modesty is important, and modesty, the self-restraint and humility of how we present ourselves to one another matters to God. And it's something that, um, as the people of God, we should not, um, we should help each other in that area. Uh, any, any questions about modesty? Yes, Anita Porter. So in the last statement, we said that um, the clothing can be worship to God. Could the opposite be said of like transgenderism? That would be a different kind of worship? Certainly. Uh, something so not God? <laughs> yes, yeah, self-worship. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I would say great, great observation and question. We, we are designed to be worshipers. Um, culture is derived from the word cultus, which means worship. So even you can look at a culture and how a culture patterns its ideas and practices, and that's downstream from what that culture worships. So if you just think about at a cultural level, at the social media level of about what we hear, people who have microphones and cameras and what we're seeing, we're seeing worship and, and the pantheon of gods of our age on display, which chiefly is self, and Satan likes that. It's the, in, it, the inversion of the image of God, image and likeness of God, and an inversion of his plan. Any, any other uh, questions about embodiment before we move on to our next segment? Is it okay that, that, that a Christian say that he's a modest guy or, or she's a modest woman? It's okay. Can a Christian say someone else is immodest or? Uh, he, he or she's a modest person. Is it's okay that? I think we can, I, if I understood your question correctly, I think that we can help each other recognize if, if what we're, acting or way we're wearing would be immodest. I, th I think we need each other to, to help each other with that. Just as parents help their children with those things as well. If I understood the question correctly. Just if you could give just some more clarification. So you know oftentimes if a woman wears seductive, seductive clothing inside church, outside of church, oftentimes Christians can say, oh my gosh, look at how she's dressing. It's no wonder why men you know, are attracted to her or tried something of her at the bench or sports or whatever. We have a tendency to hear that argument often based on the woman's dress. Would you, I know you've heard that as well, <laughs> especially due to working with kids. Would you explain that a little bit? I know you know when, when that's the case and a man, whether a believer or a non-believer, is enticed by that. But it's also the man's responsibility to look beyond that immodest dress. Would you kind of clarify that a little bit? Yeah, excellent point. So I would say there's sins on both sides. She might even be, in this exact scenario, there are sins, there, uh, there's a category of sin in the Old Testament of unintentional sin. So even you might have a right motive, or not even think about your motive, but still be sinning. So in this case, let's assume the best about this woman who's dressing a certain way that is sexually revealing and sexually enticing. 
So she may not recognize that she's in sin, but she is because she's dressing immodestly when the Lord requires modesty. But the guy is a lust factory, and so he's in sin for how he's, how he's thinking about her also. So it's, it's both and. Yeah. Lust factory. Ready to move on? Anything else? Is there more? Am I missing something? Kristen. Oh. So it, I'm asking this because of other churches that I've been in that would think a little bit differently about this. So who defines what's modest? Mm -hmm. And then how do we avoid falling into legalism in that? And being judgmental hypocrites, sin sniffers, and just calling out people and, and all of those things. Yeah, right? So there's, there is subjectivity to this. And there, there is some cultural conditioning to this. So we're given principles in Scripture, but we're not actually told specifically, well, I mean, we're given some specifics there, that the intention in this case of these, these texts on modesty is focusing on motive in the inner person rather than the external person. But we know that culturally different peoples dress differently. And so I mean, you can go down a whole ethical trail of the missionaries going to the tribe on the island who only wear grass skirts and that's it. What do you do with that when that type of dress is normal and means something to men and women different from what it would in our culture? I mean, that's that's a whole interesting ethical conversation. So there's, there is um, cultures in view, and the church family, our church family is in view, and kind of what we decide together. Um, and it's there's this there's a gray area of subjectivity in there. That's why you kind of hear me circling the airplane because there isn't a specific answer because god didn't say wear this exactly hem length this this length but i think we have to guard against judgmentalism and legalism i don't know if that's helpful let's move on to our next section so we spent that time forest trees forest trees thinking about the big idea that to bear the image and likeness of God means that God made us embodied. He didn't make us spirits. He didn't make us uh, meat machines with no spirit. He made us embodied, physical and spiritual. But he didn't just make us embodied. He also made us gendered. So moving into this next point, to be the image and likeness of God includes being gendered. Okay. Stop looking at your notes, please. Uh, interaction time. What does the world say about gender? What are some perspectives or sound bites or memes that you have to offer for our edification? Those are phrases that might make comments, don't they? The ogre bow will tell them no comment. 
So I already read the definition, but things that I've heard from commentators, um, it's a social construct and people are taught, like little girls act like little girls because they're taught to act like little girls. Little boys like guns and cars because they're taught to like guns and cars. Yep. Great. What else? If you've ever been on social media, like in the last two weeks, raise your hand. Okay, now my question still stands. What does the world tell you about gender? Hannah. That your biological sex is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Yes. That you can be any gender at any time. It depends on what you choose in the morning. Yeah. That's right. That if you want to change your gender and your parents don't agree, they'll provide you with a family that will agree and mm -hmm. take you away from your parents. Mm -hmm. But there's more than two. Yeah. Just on that note, um, I forget what year I checked. It must have been 2016 or 17. Uh, I, when we lived up in Portland, Oregon, we were close to Portland State University. And when you applied, you, um, the application process, you, there was a list of, I think, nine um, different genders, and then a whole other list of sexualities, and there was like 13 different sexualities. So then whatever the math is between nine and 13, um, and, it, and it was, it was serious, it was celebrated, it was real, is what, is what you put on your application to be, to go to the state school. What else? Mandy. I was just going to say on a, on a different note, um, I was raised with, by a feminist mother with a lot of prejudice against girly girls. So the whole gentle and quiet spirit was, no, that means you're weak and that's a bad thing. And so basically women should be as strong as men and all of that, and men shouldn't be strong because that's wrong. And so just, I just kind of wanted to bring that up too, the world's twisted sense of what right femininity is and what right masculinity is, and that's all. I, I'm about to cuss. Ready? Patriarchy. And one more toxic masculinity. So those, those two uh, cuss words and slurs of our culture are undefined terms that are boogeyman that you just throw at somebody, kind of like racist, that you just throw at somebody uh, to, because you know it's bad, you're getting canceled for whatever it is, and, and that's, that's an example um, of those things. Sorry for cussing. I was gonna say that it seems very superficial like surface level because it has to do with how you look, how you act, how you dress, how you feel, and nothing to do with your DNA or how you're made. Mm -hmm. It's all very outward. Mm -hmm. Excellent. One more, Hannah. It's all completely feelings-based and logic-based. 
well, I think that you guys are right. And one of the strange things living in our cultural moment is there is an overwhelming um, tidal wave feel that that's what everybody thinks. But I think that we are being conned into thinking that that's what everybody thinks. Um, certainly anybody, well, um, that said, the, all of the correct cultural perspectives that are unbiblical perspectives that we just gather together as a, as a room um, is what is um, being conveyed in social media, on the TV shows, and in different ways. So it's that the air that we breathe, and especially, again, generationally, the younger that you are, the more that that is the norm in cartoons. I mean, just think all of the stuff with Disney lately. Well, it's, I mean, it's been going on for a while, but especially lately and more. So, so we're thinking about gender and the world's perspective. And we're seeing that there is what can be called a war on gender. So I do have another question for us. Why, uh, what are some reasons that you think Satan hates gender? What are some reasons you think, yeah, Danny? Biggest thing, he wants to, like what most people in general time, men in general time do, throw God out the window. That's right. Satan wants to destroy the fact that in Genesis, God created man and a woman. Mm -hmm. And by coming up with this, Satan is actually willing to add an element to what God was already creating. Mm -hmm. That's good. Also, um, destroying, over here, destroying the family. So Drill into that. What do you mean? Well, God gave us three institutions, right? The church, the family, and government. And so if he can destroy one of the institutions of, that God has provided, namely the family, he's probably going to destroy society. And furthermore, he's going to wreak all kinds of harm and havoc uh, on those who buy into this ideology. And as I've said to you before, we're setting up a generation or two from now for all kinds of hurt, pain, and more than disappointment. What else? What, what, what else? Anything else you think that why, why Satan hates gender? I would say just to, to kind of move forward, building on what Andy said, the, the way I've heard it described is that the, the family unit is the atom in the universe of God's kingdom. A church is a family of families, and societies and nations are built through households. And to have a household, it begins with a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and the complementary roles that God assigned to them so that the creation commission can flourish. And so Satan is going after the heart. If you, if you can get men not to know what a man is and a woman not to know what a woman is, then you destroy the household, 
you destroy the children who do or do not exist, and you destroy the atoms of God's kingdom. And then you just you pull down society and culture and nations. So, um, so if we look at our notes here, what does the world say? Gender is fluid social construct detached from one's biological gender. Gender or non-gender is a choice to be determined by one's self whenever and however one feels or identifies. Gender and sexuality is whatever one feels it to be. And the binary notion of male and female and only male and female, inseparable from one's physical gender, is harmful and hateful. And since the view is derived from the Bible, the Bible is oppressive and the Bible must be overthrown. So we talked about this in the first two weeks, right? So part of us establishing the, the biblical doctrine of humanity is in contrast to our current cultural moment and the notions of the cultural hegemony. Remember the, the fancy words, all the fancy words invented that are hard to define, which simply means the majority. And the majority of where we live is white. And the majority of where we live, meaning America, uh, is um, professes to be Christian. And that Christian biblical ethic, which has informed the Western world for a very, very long time, um, is itself what is oppressive. Because it says that you're wrong if you go against what the word of God says. And therefore, we must get do away with what is wrong. That's, that's an oppressive idea. Well, let's turn to the Bible and hear some good stuff, life-giving truths. What is gender and what is it for? So if, if you're still there, I open with it, but here it is on the screen or in your notes, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And uh, I put in the, the Hebrew terms next to the English terms. You'll see it as I read. Then God said, let us make man, Adam, Adam, in our image and after our likeness, let them, plural, have dominion, literally, so that they may rule over the fish, over the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, Zakar and Nekeba, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's recall briefly the terms we were introduced to a number of weeks ago. In Hebrew, there are four main words used for man, and, and here they are. So we've already seen that Adam, Adam, it's used 558 times, and it's either the proper name of the first guy, Adam, first man created, or that is the name of humanity. So mankind or Adamkind is, is used, that all of humanity is named after our first father. That's why we were called mankind or Adamkind. It designates our name. There's Zakar, and this is the key. We need to latch on to this. We'll circle back to this. So if you look up in verse 27 in your notes, there they are. God created Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Zakar and Nekeba, he created them. And this term, it's used 82 times, and I just put a brief sampling, just 
some of the first instances that it's used there in Genesis, right next to that, chapter 1, 5, 6, 7, and so on, this word refers to and emphasizes genderedness. So it refers to biology, either male biology or female biology, and it's the word that's used to talk about male animals or female animals. So when God tells Noah to bring two of each kind onto the ark, male and female, he says, bring Zakar and Nekeba giraffes onto the ark, and so on. It's, re- it's a reference to gender. And then there's the other two, um, Ish or Ish and Isha, man and husband. We'll see those in Genesis 2 in a little while. And then at the top, uh, Geber, which is man. But this is a word that could almost be translated as masculine. So it's a Hebrew concept of masculinity. Geber is a word closely related to, it's, a, it's, a, it's related to the verb for physical strength. And as an idiom in certain passages refers to courage and bravery, like in battle. And, um, or ironically, in some of the Psalms, for men who are not geber, not courageous. Uh, and um, it's dealing with masculine. So it's not how many push-ups a guy can do or how heavy a sword he can wield. But there's something going on about courage and bravery. And it's defined as male. That'll be important when we begin to talk about what is a man, what is a man for, and what is a woman, what is a woman for. But right now, we're just talking about gender. So we're zooming in. We're going to do an exegetical study here. Again, looking at Genesis 1.27, we need to zoom in. Very important text. So I, I have it here broken in clauses on the screen and in your notes. There are three clauses, three statements in verse 27 And it's very important that we read them appropriately in their relationship to each other. So I have actually, you can see, it says clause one, so God created man in his own image. And then clause two and three are indented. And they're indented because the grammar is using clause two and three to footnote or to further explain what the first clause means. Very important. So God created man in his own image. There's the statement. Hey, Lord, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, Zakar and Nekeba, he created them. The first clause is the summary statement with clauses two and three commenting on clause one. They explain it. It's commentary. In other words, clauses two and three do not advance the narrative. Rather, it's pausing the narrative to explain, kind of like footnotes, what it means to be created in God's own image. Clause 2 is not only a repetition of, the, of verse 26 in the first clause, it highlights that the man represents God in some way. So when it says, in the image of God, he created him, that means... Somehow, humanity represents God in some way. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Well, our focus here is on clause three. Male and female, he created them. This indicates that God creates humans with binary gender and sexuality. 
either male or female. These clauses are important because clause 2 and 3 of verse 27 prepare for the two commands God is about to give. So I've talked about the creation commission, but we haven't looked at it yet. God makes people, but he makes them for a purpose, and it's a multifaceted purpose. And he commissions them to do and be something in the world. It means something for a man and a woman to image and uh, to image God in the world. And so clauses two and three prepare for the two commands God gives his image bearers in the surrounding verses. So verse 26, so that they may rule. And verse 28, fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, and have dominion. So here's why this grammar is significant. Clause 2, in the image of God who created him, is the basis and explains man's representative rule and dominion over the earth. God wants man and woman to exercise dominion and subdue and rule. Therefore, I'm working backwards, he makes them in his image. To be the image is how you're going to rule and subdue. In Clause 3, Zakar and Makeba, he created them, is the basis and explains how man and woman will be fruitful and multiply on the earth, namely through procreation. So in the flow of the text, the logic of the Hebrew, you have to slow down and think about what God is saying. He's going to end by giving them the commission. Um, produce and reproduce. Produce in creation and reproduce image bearers. Those two commands. And those commands are bound up in verse 27. It explains what's, what's happening there. Pause for a moment. Any, any questions on the meaning of the Hebrew and more? Pastor Andy. Clarification yes. very quickly on yeah. the word man in verse uh, 26. So you've said man was given a mandate to rule and, and subdue and et cetera. Would it not be mankind? Yes. You know, Thank you very much. Include brother and sister, yeah. male and female. Yes. That's, a, that's what I was intending to say with that collective noun, man. Yes. Thank you. Good clarification. Randy. Uh, to answer your question a little bit earlier, why Satan hates gender, it might be because he has no gender, and that when God created man and woman in, in God's image, Satan probably was a little bit jealous of the fact that he did create gender and he has no gender. At least I don't think he does. I don't think he's male or female. It's a very interesting thought. It's a very interesting thought. Okay, sneak peek to Randy's interesting thought. There is, Anita, it's okay. Yes. you said about produce and reproduce re was that what you said I thought you said two p words produce and pro yeah the little just 
preachy two words I use to describe the creation commission is that we are to reproduce image bearers and produce on the earth is one way to think about fruitful and multiply and dominion and rule. Does that make sense? Yeah, just, just a memory device. Okay, no, that, that rescued us from the divergent thought I was going to get on, on androgyny and how androgyny is, the, is a pagan ideal that's resurgent in our culture. And there's um, very interesting research on that that we'll get to at a different class. Any other? Yeah, Rose. Okay, this is one of the... Um, I heard this from, from people that were transgender, pro-transgender, and they bring up the fact of a baby's born with ambiguous genitalia. Uh, won't you be able to determine that with the blood? Because if there's an... I, yeah, because only a boy would have the Y chromosome, right? Correct. That's right. That's right. Um, yes. And I've had a lot of babies, and it was pretty clear. <laughs> Technically, my wife has had a lot of babies. It's harder than writing a sermon. Anyway. <laughs> um, Ouch. <laughs> Do we just, just take um, the microphone from her now? He gave it to me. Um, but I was just going to say, like, something that's tossed around in my head, because there are um, mutations where there sometimes can be two Ys or, yes. or um, three Xs, which either of those is still clear. The one that I think is probably the most confusing is when there's two X's and a Y. Um, and, but for one, those are extremely rare cases, and so they shouldn't be used to like excuse any kind of nonsense, right? Um, but it'd be interesting, I don't, I don't know, I, I would have to know details about the situation that you just brought up. It's just kind of an interesting. Yeah, so, so that's a really good point, and we, um, blew past that in the previous section. It's actually on page 33 in your notes. Um, 32 and 33. So the effects of sin and the curse on creation is a reason for deformity and disability. Not just the immaterial part of us. There is mental illness, but there is also physical illness and deformity. And so in rare cases, hermaphrodites are born, and the exceptions don't create the rule, and those are very special cases that require a lot of ethical, prayerful reflection on how parents proceed in those situations. We, uh, w uh, we have had friends who have experienced that, and so it was a very complex uh, issue to walk through. Um, but that is, that is a, an aspect of the effects of, of the curse. In a really, but the uh, exceptions never create the rule. And what about what about ism doesn't establish the norm in those cases? And so, if, if I was talking to somebody about that issue, and they bring up, well, what about a hermaphrodite, someone who's born with both sexes, to varying degrees or varying degrees of presentation or expression, uh, that's a really important ethical question to discuss. But nonetheless, our text shows us male and female is the norm and the intention. And I would also then say to 
the young children who are, are confused being born that way, that uh, I would want to shepherd them through that and console them in Christ. And we're going we're gonna to get to the notion of, of eunuchs in a little bit, how some people choose to be eunuchs, some people are made eunuchs, and some people are born eunuchs. And I think that addresses that question. But that's God's difficult providence in their life to trust his hand uh, in their life and to, to know that um, he can use even that hardship for his glory and, and more. And that's why one of the big emphases that we've had is to be the image and likeness of God isn't 50% male and 50% female, but it's contained in a person entirely. So they're not subhuman for having something like that. Yes, Alexis. So when I became a new Christian, I remember reading a book just talking about like what it means to be a woman of God and like how that's different from men. And one of the things it mentioned was that um, men and women being so different in a lot of ways are actually a way that God mirrors different aspects of his character through his creation. Like more nurturing, like like women can tend to be a little bit more nurturing, like that part of me is that side of God, or like men's courage and bravery, those different kinds of things. Would you think that with our culture not having those defined lines anymore, that that kind of taints that image a bit of like that revealing of the different aspects of God's character? I think so. I think so. There's, we'll get into this, but there's, there's a passage, I cannot remember where it is, maybe one of you will remember, where Paul is talking about his ministry. Uh, it might be in one of the Thessalonians or one of the T books, Timothy or Thessalonians or Titus, somewhere in there, in your New Testament. And he's talking about how on the one hand, they were gentle like nursing mothers with them, as well as exhorting them like fathers. And so Paul didn't, wasn't bashful of saying that they acted a certain way uh, that is associated with biblical femininity, um, but those can get pressed too far uh, by people who embrace transgender ideals and whatnot. But I do think that you're right, that God is glorified in the femininity of a biblical woman and masculinity of a biblical man. First Thessalonians 2, 7. Thanks for Jacob. Somewhere in there. Anita, do you have a question? Okay. The chiastic structure. Yes, praise the Lord. Um, what's a chiastic structure? So a chiasm, chi is the Greek X to us, and it is a very, very common Hebraic way of writing that is the opposite of the way that we write. So um, we like to make conclusions, point, 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 therefore conclusion, and have a linear thought that is not Hebraic thought, especially in the Old Testament, where the main point is in the middle of what they say. The main point, the emphasis is in the middle of what they say, not at the end of what they say, which is Frustrating to us and hard to understand, but it's actually a beautiful symmetry in the text. So there is a chiastic structure. And when you see that take place here in Genesis, it, it's, um, it pops the text in neon. If you're alerted to it and aware of it, 
says, it's like God is stopping us to say something very significant is happening. So if you see here in the notes, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Be fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue, excuse me, fill, and then subdue, rule, and dominion. The way that you read that, you have capital A, in the image of God, he created him, corresponds to A prime, is how you say that, and it's to subdue, subdue and rule and exercise dominion. There's, a, there's an emphasis in the text, but then the middle, the X, this, the center of it is male and female, he created them, you know, Zakar and Akeba, be fruitful, multiply, and fill. That, that is the, that's the um, bold font, it's the shout, it's the emphasis of the text, is the genderedness and the fruitfulness of a family. So it's all very important, but it's an exclamation point there on those two center ideals in this chiastic structure. So it's a, it's a matter of emphasis inspired by the Holy Spirit as Moses wrote this down for us. So let's draw some concluding thoughts on this. So we've done some exegesis. We've looked in the text. We've drawn out the meaning of the words. We've looked at terms and whatnot. We've fit it together. We observed it so we can be confident in our interpretation. What is gender and what is it for from God's perspective and for God's design for the world? Gender, first and foremost, is designed and defined by God as one of only two binaries, male or female. Period. End of sentence. And as we draw these conclusions, think about the beginning of our time where we surveyed together the world's perspective, or um, especially, and again, the younger generations behind us being risen up who are taught all the things that we talked about. Gender's fluid, non-binary, it's what you want it to be, it's detached from your physical self, it's really what you feel, what you feel is what you are, is what our world says. God says, nope, I designed you. I define you, and there's only two, male or female. Gender is how all living creatures, according to their kinds, will reproduce according to their kind. So the part of the Genesis 1 and making the creatures and the birds of the heavens and beasts of the field and people is so that people can make more people. Reproduction. Gender is physiologically hardwired into God's reproducing living creatures. So I, I've mentioned how um, I'm not going into biological sciences, and, all, and we know so much. It would just blow out this This Our class would get so big. I'm trying to just take us to the text of Scripture, and w what science is, what biology is teaching us is what the Bible has said from the beginning. Um, so gender is physiologically hardwired into God's reproducing living creatures. And here, maybe a little bit of a new perspective. As embodied image bearers, union of physical and spiritual, hardware and software, gender is not only a matter, material aspect of our being, with the immaterial being asexual and genderless. God designed 
being male or female as encompassing the whole person, physical and spiritual. There is, therefore, such a biblical reality as masculine and feminine, as implied, for example, in that Hebrew term, geber, that we talked about a little bit ago. So let's delve into that a little bit. Scripture, history, observation, and common sense, though that's debatable, not to, manner, not to mention all manner of biological studies, reveal that men and women are different not just physiologically with our morphology, our hormones, our neuro neurologically, and more, but also the inner person level, our emotions, instincts, perceptions, aptitudes, and more. In the Bible, it actually means something to be masculine, and it means something to be feminine. Now, the, we're going somewhere with this when we get into male and female. Because remember what I said earlier, patriarchy, toxic masculinity, Manny's example of feminism, and more. There's a war also on the, among the genders. There's a war on gender, and then there's a war against, specifically, men and masculinity. And there are sinful expressions of masculinity and femininity, and there are godly expressions of masculinity and femininity, and we're going to be moving that direction. But right now, I'm just making the point that gender goes all the way down to the depth of your soul. And this, this is what we talked about, how as Christians, we tend to think the spiritual is important, but not the physical. And I want you to see that we are embodied beings. That was the point of the, that previous point. So consider the various responsibilities Attitudes and emotions scripture assigns respectively to men and women in marriage, love and respect, honor and submission, and more. Not delving into it here because we'll get to that topic later. But as you're reading through the Bible, tune your ears to the times that more often than not, the Bible's talking to the whole church. But there's also times where men are singled out with responsibilities, ways that they're supposed to act as men, older men to, to younger men, men in marriage, men to parents, men among men, men in the world, and then same thing with women, older women to younger women, and, and, and so on. There are gender-specific texts in the Bible positively telling us how to be and also positively telling us uniquely gender-specific sins to put off. We'll look at those. So that's what I'm just giving you this soundbite. Consider how the book of Proverbs highlights unique sins more common to either men or women. And sins are arising from the inner immaterial person expressed through their physical selves. Consider the unique responsibilities in the church women are to have for one another, especially older for younger women, likewise with men. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. He's not telling the women to act like men. He's telling the men to act like men. So, so that whatever that means, in a biblical worldview, there is a certain way that men act that is masculine and manly and God-glorifying and good, contra toxic masculinity, the patriarchy, and more. 
There are ways that men act, the inner person revealed on the exterior that is unique to men and vice versa with women. Men share common inner person traits with men such that characteristics and stereotypes are normal and vice versa for men and women. So gendered masculinity and femininity are, very, are a very good product of creation, integral to the creation commission, uniquely reflect the image and likeness of God, but were frustrated and deformed by sin and rebellion in the fall. Christ is the true man from whom true masculinity is modeled and in whom fallen masculinity and to a different degree, biblical or fallen femininity are redeemed and being restored. I want to pause there for a moment because we'll drill into that a little bit. But this notion that gender goes all the way down to masculine and feminine. And it's bound up with our hard wiring and the soft wiring, so to speak. Any questions on that? On we go. There is a problem text that's not a problem. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 and 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law, Mosaic law, was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So this text is clearly teaching that the goal of the gospel as, is androgyny. Isn't that what it said? So if you're sharing the gospel with somebody on campus... And if they've had any biblical background, youth group kid who's denied the faith, and this could be a text that they would point to and say, well, the Bible just said right there, because of Jesus, there's neither male nor female. So it doesn't matter whether I'm trans or whatnot. How would you answer that question? I'm going to answer it for us just for the sake of time because this class is almost done. But just think about that for a second. This text is also used um, in the ways that texts get co-opted. In recent decades, especially with the rise of second and third wave feminism, the notion that God gifts to men and women different roles in the home and the church. Egalitarians say that that is a result of the fall and that in Jesus, because we're saved, there's no longer roles for men and women. So a man is not the head of his household, and women should be pastors and elders as well. This is the go-to verse for them 
to argue that point also. So the answer to the question is always context. Context, context, context. If you just took verse 28 and tweeted it, you get all manner of responses of people would say, see, transgenderism is, is legit. So as an out-of-context out of soundbite, this would appear to teach that gender has been erased in Christ. There's no male or female. It says it right there. But the Bible. A quick read of context reveals that the apostle is arguing that salvation in Christ is open to all, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of economic status, regardless of gender. The gospel makes us all, regardless of any human distinction, sons of God by faith in, in Christ. Sons of God by faith in a salvific, adoptive sense. No longer will covenant relationship with God be narrowed from Abraham, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, Israel, not Gentiles. With the wrong human perspective that only Jews can be saved, Paul's point is that all who repent and believe the gospel of Jesus can be saved. So his argument is entirely having to do with the transition from the Mosaic law to the new covenant and the gospel salvation that Jesus provides. So when he says Jew or Gentile, those are ethnic boundaries. Slave or free are economic boundaries. And male and female are gender boundaries. And whatever, whichever one of those or whatever uh, mixture, I'm not going to say intersection, that you are of those you can still be saved by Jesus. His death on the cross for our sins, his poured out blood, he's the savior of all who turn to him. So we looked at last week or a couple weeks ago in the sermon, Romans 10, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Paul's point. So any person who goes to this text to, um, for any other purpose than to talk about salvation in Christ through the free grace of the gospel is misusing this text. It's not even an implication of this text to talk about roles in the home or the church, let alone androgyny. So in no way does this text remove gender distinction, masculinity and femininity, or gifted gender roles explicitly or implicitly, since this is a passage about salvation and the salvation historic transition from the Mosaic Covenant to the New Covenant in Christ. Any questions on that passage that can be used against you wrongly? Pastor Andy. Or clarification. Uh, no, question. Um, let's suppose I have this conversation with somebody who uses, uses it against me the way you just described. I explain to him perfectly, you know, we move from Mosaic Covenant to a new covenant. And so they would say to me, so you're saying men and women aren't equal? How would you defend that? Are men and women equal? Men and women are equal, equally bearing the image and likeness of God. And God has gifted roles to men and women in the home that no, in no way demeans or denies equal image bearing. But headship and submission are gifts of God in how marriage works best as well as the home. To which you'd have a whole other host of arguments against that. Yes, Mandy. I was just going to say, it makes me think, like, I feel like this verse is arguing against what I, my understanding of what they believe in Mormonism, where um, the husband kind of gets to decide whether his wife is 
saved aloud into heaven, that kind of um, inequality among the genders, and this would be, this verse would be fighting against that kind of idea, not the differences between genders. Do you know, I don't, are you familiar with it? I'm not, I'm not up to, I'm not interested in Mormon theology. I'm not up to speed on it though, yeah, I, I can't comment on that. Okay, let's move forward 10 minutes. Why does, where are we? Why does the binary gendered humanity exist? Two reasons. Reason number one, we've seen it, but to summarize, the reason God made us male and female so that man and woman might obey the creation commission together. It takes the man and woman together to reproduce their kind and more and more of their kind are needed to both fill and rule all creation. So, but let's, let's talk about single people for a moment. And people whom God gifts with singleness for their life. You, you can hear these things um, and, and mishear other truths. So let's just be reminded. One. The image of God is not divided 50% in a man and 50% in a woman, and you're deficient until you get married, so you can finally be the image of God together. Rather, both the man and the woman are fully the image and likeness of God individually on their own. The creation commission, the slash dominion mandate, goes by different names, however, requires both of them to be oppositely gendered, yet in union with one another. This implies that a single person is in no way less the image of God than a married person. Nor does it imply if somebody is unmarried their whole life, that their masculinity or femininity is irrelevant. You are still a mother or father in the church, so to speak, a, a brother or sister in Christ, um, an uncle or auntie to the kids. And so a danger would be to um, turn marriage into the definition of image and likeness. And I've tried to labor to show you that it's marriage is not the definition of. Marriage is one of the results of being in the image and likeness of God. And gender is a result so that we can procreate. Scripture assumes that the majority of people will marry and bear children. Scripture also provides honor and purpose to single people Especially given that Jesus' great commission of Matthew 28, where one is fruitful, multiplies disciples. I read that fast. Let me say that again. When Jesus rises from the grave and commissions the disciples with Matthew 28, the great commission is an echo of the creation commission. That's why I'm using the same language to understand those. The Christian is now fruitful and multiplies, ends, rules, and exercises dominion, by going out and making disciples of all nations. So you might be a single person, and you can use that single per that's your singleness in a way that a married person cannot to go and obey Jesus in those certain ways. So singleness is a gift. Don't mis mishear that. And there's a relationship between the two. So you may not, uh, it could be the infertile couple, it could be the, whatever it is, um, understand that Matthew 28 is an additive to this of the Great Commission. So Matthew 19, the disciples said to him, if such is the case, 
of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone who receives this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Here, eunuch specifically refers to a man, a male who is unable to bear children, whether by birth, injury, some other factor, or chooses a life of celibacy or abstinence. That their life is single, devoted to the Lord. See 1 Corinthians 7. So I just want to just briefly touch on singleness as it pertains to being gendered. And that a single person is not a subperson because they are not married. Both in young age and older age and all age. And singleness aside, God's creational norm and expectation is that the overwhelming majority of men and women will marry and reproduce and fulfill the creation commission. So again, we're closing this part out about why gender exists. It's so that we can obey God's command to be fruitful and multiply. But there is, our ending point, the most glorious reason why gender exists. Why does the binary gender of humanity exist? Reason two, the gospel. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting Genesis 2. This mystery is profound, the mystery of Genesis 2, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So there is multiple reasons why God created us male and female. Certainly we've hammered the point of fruitful multiply. We haven't gone as much into the uh, rule and subdue. But there is an even more important role that marriage exists. And that is because marriage has been designed by God from before people existed to be a mystery that is a living parable and picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A man leaving his mother and father and holding fast to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. Mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If you look up in Ephesians 5, you well, a, a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. A wife is to submit to her husband and respect her husband as the church does to Christ. So if you skip down, uh, so... Number two, while marriage has many purposes centered on the Great Commission, God always intended its chief end to be a living image and likeness of Jesus Christ's love, redemption, and relationship with his bride, the universal church. That means that the watching world, focused especially on watching children in the home, are to gain a greater understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for the church through a husband's word-washing, self-sacrificial, other-oriented headship of his wife. The watching world focused on watching children are to gain a greater understanding of who the church is 
and what she does through a wife's joyful submission and respect to her husband as his helper. The reason that God invented marriage and assigned roles to marriage of headship and submission, of love and respect, of the different ways that scripture describes it, is so that the way a husband dies to himself for his wife and the wife submits to her husband displays for the children in the home especially and the friends, wow, when I watch you interact with your wife, I have a better understanding of who Jesus is by the way that you talk to her, talk about her, look at her, cherish her, treasure her, and love her. And dear wife, the way that you honor your husband, speak of him, respect him, and revere him, I get a better understanding of what the church is like in her worship of the Lord and how you honor your husband. So why did God make gender? Because he wanted to give a tangible way next to baptism and the Lord's Supper that your marriage would be a living parable of what the gospel looks like. Which then goes back to that question, why does Satan have a war on gender? The added layer is Satan hates the gospel. If Satan can get a husband to be a domineering jerk or a passive guy, uninvolved, if he can get a wife to be disrespectful, dripping faucet, or controlling, or whatever the extremes that we can go to, if he can invert the roles of marriage, it inverts the gospel because the husband is no longer being Jesus-like and the, husband, or the wife is no longer being church-like. That, that's why gender is important. That's why marriage is important. And that's why the creation commission is important. And that's why the great commission is important because the gospel matters. That is the end of our time. I'm going to pray for us. And you're free to go. And if you want to stay and ask questions, I'd love to answer any questions that you have. Let me pray for us. Yes, Randy? Marriage and uh, being fruitful and multiplying is of necessity, would be of necessity because God has elected a people before the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. Have babies for him to save. That's right. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We understand that we have remaining sins and confusions. We may, uh, it's so easy for us to breathe the air of this culture and to hear what your word says and to even doubt it or distrust it. But we pray for your spirit to illuminate the glory of your word, that we'd receive it and believe it. We would treasure Jesus, his taking our sins upon the cross on our behalf, his resurrection from the grave, conquering Satan's sin and death, and that because of him, restoring in us true biblical masculinity, biblical femininity, true marriage, true singleness, and more. So, Lord, we pray that we would be armed with this gospel of grace to speak the truth and love to one another and to speak it against those who are being seduced by the delusions and lies of the enemy. And we pray, Lord, that you would send revival by your spirit to break the... Um, demonic strongholds, the beliefs that we uh, are to tear down with your word, and that you would save many people and bring them into the liberating freedom of your gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.